Well, it's Easter, as you know, and I uh, wanted to look at a passage that, that helps us consider the resurrection. So we're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is sort of a go-to passage. Uh, there's a, there are other passages about the resurrection. The Gospels tell us about the resurrection actually happening, but this is an extended reflection on it, and we're just going to look at one part. So if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. Um, Two summers ago when we were on vacation, I finally read the last Harry Potter book, or at least the last one of the the seven. I know there's been some more volumes. And uh, there's a really powerful scene in that book. There's a lot of powerful scenes in that book, but one powerful scene is when Harry and Hermione go to a village called Godric's Hollow. And this village has a lot of meaning for a lot of different reasons. Um, it's named after the, the man that Gryffindor at, uh, at Hogwarts is named after. He, he, he lived there, Godric Gryffindor. So the village is named after him. And um, this actually is where some of Dumbledore's family are buried. You know, he's the, the headmaster of Hogwarts. But, uh, but the big reason this is, this is moving is that Harry's never been to this village before, and, and this is the, the place where his own parents are buried. They're buried in a churchyard in Godric's Hollow, and he's never been. So there's this scene where it's nighttime, and uh, Harry and Hermione are very concerned. They're being followed, so they're just kind of constantly looking over their shoulder. Snow is falling. And they go to this churchyard, and they, be, they begin looking through the, the headstones. And finally, Hermione says, Harry, I found them. And he walks over, and there's a white marble headstone. It's one of those headstones where it's for, for two spaces. And the headstone says, James Potter, Lily Potter. And they were born, uh, both born early 1960. And, of course, they both died the same day. They were killed by Voldemort on the same day. So 31st October, 1981. They were 21 years old. And the epitaph under James and Lily Potter's names is, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And J.K. Rowling took that epitaph from our passage this morning. This is a letter by the Apostle Paul. It's written to first-generation Christians in the city of Corinth. And I don't know what you know about Corinth, but Corinth was a port city, big, affluent, cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic. So think a New York, uh, L.A., San Francisco kind of place. It's a city that's been formed by paganism, not by biblical religion. And so you've got this interesting spectacle of an apostle writing to Christians in a cool, affluent, big, important, pagan city and giving just one of the most amazing reflections on the resurrection. Not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of all who believe in him. So let's look at part of this. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 16. 
And really we're picking up with, in some ways, Paul in a logic exercise about what if this isn't true? For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what we get to do this morning. Thank you that already in our city people have gathered at sunrise in the cold in Jesus' name to sing and to read and to celebrate and confess that the tomb is empty. And as we hear your word, we pray that you'll help us. Help, help this to go deep down in our hearts whether we know this well or not, we pray it will go deeper inside us than it ever has. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by quoting from a blog, which is always a safe way to start a sermon. Quote from a blog. I mean, it's on the internet. It must be true, so no worries. But this is really, I, I quote this from time to time because this was written by a young woman. She came out of Hinduism and then she explored the Baha'i faith for a time. And then she came to, to Christianity. She became a Christian. And so she, she gives this really great perspective about what was it like to explore Christianity or even hear about the Bible before I was a Christian. And, and uh, it's just very fresh and honest. L- listen to this. Christians claimed that Jesus was God, was the Son of God, and all this stuff about a trinity which really I had no idea what they were talking about. They claimed this resurrection, which made no sense to me. Not that I didn't believe Jesus couldn't rise from the dead if he were God, but I had no idea what possible relevance that could have since I didn't understand about the fall, the sin, the final resurrection. I assumed these were all myths with no more relevant deep meaning than a fairy tale except maybe metaphorical spiritual meanings. I wasn't even interested because I never understood what importance that event should have to me. No Christian ever explained that to me. They would just say crazy stuff like, I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb and now I'm saved. Jesus died for your sins. Don't you want to be saved? And then they'd paint portraits of hell and it all made zero sense to me. It's just as though someone had said, 
My red balloon popped and then candy canes fell out of the sky. Your rabbit is winking at me. Doesn't all this make you want to buy a new Nissan? And she says, I'm not exaggerating. This nutshell gospel message makes absolutely no sense to a non-Christian, no meaningful sense anyway. You just have no idea what are they so excited about. So Jesus rose from the dead, big whoop. So what? Good for him. But so what? I I love that candor. And I, I feel for the person who is here this morning and you either you're new to this stuff or you stepped away from it for a long time. Uh, and and I, again, just however you come, we're just glad you're here. So, so thankful you're here this morning. But, I, you know, right out of the gates on Easter morning, it's, you know, Christ the Lord is risen today. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And there's more exclamation points in this bulletin than probably any other bulletin that we have on a Sunday. And I, I just wonder about the person who's, they're not going to say it out loud, but they're feeling, okay, I do get that this must be important. I have no idea why. And so here's my hope. I I hope that this passage can start to engage that question about not so much, how do I know that he rose from the dead? And I'd love to talk to you about that. But but more, more of the question, so what? Why does the church go nuts about this at, at Easter? So let's look at two things this morning. Let's think about the priority of the resurrection and then the meaning of the resurrection. And I really want to look in particular at this metaphor that Paul uses here about what the resurrection means, all right? So the priority of the resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection. Now, first off, the priority. Uh, you may or may not know this, but before Paul went by Paul, he went by Saul. He grew up being called Saul, a very Jewish name. And he grew up in Tarsus. And Tarsus isn't really famous in history for us, but Tarsus would be like a Cambridge or an Oxford or a Princeton or Sorbonne or something like that. It was, it was a seat of higher learning. So Paul seems to have had a world-class education growing up. And uh, even people who aren't into Jesus and they're not into the New Testament will still concede that when you read Paul's writings, you, you've encountered a great thinker. And it's interesting in this passage that you, you see that Paul must have had some kind of training in, in formal logic because he's using these if-then statements. And there's more before this, but I just want to drill down on these. There are three if-then statements, and, and I want you to hear these again. Look back in verse 16. He says, let, let's read them, and then let's just put it in, in easier lingo. All right, verse 16. If the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, let me me put that in my own words. If then, if then, if then. If dead people stay dead, Jesus is still dead. If Jesus is still dead, Jesus is a hoax. 
If Jesus is a hoax and we trusted in Him in this life, we're pitiful. Now, I love, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you know like when you're watching a movie and, you know, you're watching a movie, and the, but in some movies the character will just all of a sudden turn to the camera and start to talk to you? Like I remember when I saw Ferris Bueller's Day Off in college, and I loved that. You know, Ferris would just be doing his thing, and then he'll kind of turn to you and talk to you about like how I'm manipulating my parents right now and how I really do need a day off, and then he'll go back into character. This part of this letter... You know, a letter is different than a movie. He's speaking to the people he's writing, but it's, it's almost like a movie where Paul turns to the camera and goes, but you know, like, what if this isn't true? And I, I just want you to appreciate how you, unique this is in world religions and sacred scriptures is, is for, an, for, for an apostle in the Bible to turn to you and say, have you ever thought about the fact that this might be a hoax? And he lays his cards on the table and says this. If dead people stay dead, the main character is dead. If the main character is dead, this is all a hoax. If this is all a hoax, this thing is pitiful. In fact, Paul might say, I of all people am pitiful. Because I'm going all over the world to tell people, you must believe this. This is how you'll have eternal life. If he's still dead, this is folly. Now, we're not explaining it so much yet, but I want you to hear the New Testament saying the resurrection is not like, yeah, it's sort of an aspect of Christianity. It's more like everything rides on this. So what's the meaning? And, uh, yeah, you know, the, there's the one, one um, Christian writer has said, it's interesting that the Bible at different moments, when it's about to tell you something really important that so much rides on, instead of maybe explaining it the way we would with like major points and sub points and a very clear outline and very, you know, very buttoned down, it'll use a metaphor. It'll use an image. And Paul does that here. What does he call Jesus as the resurrected main character of everything, the central figure of Scripture. Okay, look in verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And what does he call him? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And, and when Paul, often when he talks about Christians dying, he'll refer to them as, as falling asleep. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Look in verse 23, that when Jesus comes back, here's how it's going to go. Each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, what, what kind of image is that? First fruits? And it's actually, this is interesting because he's writing people that, that are more from a pagan sort of culture, urban culture, but he's using a very Jewish image first fruits. The first fruits were uh, an image drawn from when the Israelites came out of slavery and they crossed the Jordan River. They made it through the wilderness. They crossed the Jordan River and they became landowners. They came into the promised land and they received their inheritance and they started growing food. 
And when you saw that first uh, bushel of wheat or that first bushel of olives or that first cluster of grapes at the very beginning of the harvest, those were the first fruits. Now, what are first fruits? What's the meaning? Why is that, why is that the metaphor to use here? Let, let, me, let me point out a couple of things. The more I read about this, first fruits mean a lot of things in the Bible. But let's just look at two, okay? What do first fruits do? And they do at least two things. They make a promise visible, and they make the future visible. All right? They make a promise visible, and they make the future visible. Like, think about this. Going back into the Old Testament, way back in Genesis, way back, back before Moses, God comes to Abraham. In fact, he's not even named Abraham yet. He's Abram. There, there is no Jewish people. There is no Hebrew nation. He comes to this man and he says, I'm going to give your offspring this land. And he's talking about inhabited Canaanite land that will become the promised land one day. He promises Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants that land. Now, that's a nice promise. But how do we know that's going to happen? And you fast forward from Genesis to where the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, his offspring, his great-great-great-great-grandsons and granddaughters, they come into this land... And they move on to land where maybe there's already established farms and orchards and vineyards. And the harvest comes and they hold up the first cluster of grapes. Or they hold the first, you know, basket full of olives. What was that saying? It was saying, when God promises me something, it's not pretend. It's real. You know, uh, you know the book that gets passed around a lot and quoted and, and uh, um, you know, it's kind of, a, kind of an executive leader sort of go-to book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You ever heard of that book by Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Okay, no one's nodding, so clearly you're ineffective <laughs> people. Now, there's a, there's a story that Stephen Covey's daughter tells about when she was 12 years old. Her dad... Stephen Covey, he was uh, speaking, he was giving a presentation in San Francisco, and so she, uh, she was brought on this trip, and she sat in the back while he gave his presentation, and they had agreed that when it was through, and they had been planning this for months, that he was going to, before, before he got mobbed by people asking questions, he was going to find her in the back, they were going to hop on a trolley, they were going to go to Chinatown, they were going to eat Chinese food because that was their favorite. And then they were going to buy a souvenir. And then they were going to walk around town. And then they were going to, she said her dad would say, catch a flick. They're going to go watch a movie. And then they were going to take a cab back to the hotel. And they were going to swim in the pool at night. And then they were going to get room service and get a hot fudge sundae. And then they were going to watch light show TV and then go to bed. And they, would, they went over it. It was like a liturgy. They rehearsed it, anticipated it. So time comes. They go to San Francisco Covey speaks, he gets through, he goes to the back of the room, he's walking out with 12-year-old Cynthia, and before they get to the trolley, they bump into an old college friend of his. 
And it's a guy that, that he had worked with. And they hadn't seen each other in a long time. So they're talking, and this guy's saying, you know what? I found out that our company is going to be doing some more stuff with your company. I was so excited to hear that. Listen, Lois and I are headed to go get an amazing seafood dinner at Fisherman's Wharf. Uh, you and Cynthia, you've got to come with us. We, we, we want to host you tonight. And Cynthia hears her dad say, Bob, it is so great to see you. Fisherman's Wharf sounds great. And her heart just fell. And then she hears her dad say, but we can't do it tonight because Cynthia and I have a big date, right? And he grabs her hand and winks at her, and they beeline it out, and they hop on the trolley. And uh, in, in an interview in 2012, she said, uh, because she had, she had recently lost him, she said when he did that, quote, it bonded him to me forever. I knew that I was the most important thing to him. And I'm not saying that every Israelite felt this, but to the Israelite who believed God's word and worshiped the Lord, when he held up that cluster of grapes knowing that the people that used to live on this land, strictly speaking, should have conquered us, we couldn't have conquered them, but here we are, it meant His promises are real. When Jesus rose from the dead, not metaphorically, physically, tangibly, literally, it's God saying, when I promise you that I can raise the dead, when I promise you that the way the world works now is not the way it's always going to work. This isn't an abstraction. That man is alive, and he's never going to die again. It makes the promise, the resurrection, makes God's promise visible. Now, in some way, the second thing stems from the first, but I'm going to to say this is a second thing. First fruits... Make your future visible. First fruits make your future visible. The reason they're called first fruits is because when you brought to the Lord, when you presented to the Lord, when you held in your hands the bushel of wheat, the basket of olives, the cluster of grapes, it also is celebrating the fact that because God is who He is, Because God is faithful, because he gives me what I don't deserve, not what I deserve. This isn't the only basket or bushel. This is the first bushel of a whole bunch more bushels. This is the first cluster of grapes of a lot more grapes to come. Jesus rises bodily. Now again, like the lady said in the blog, good for him. But, okay, that's the thing. It's not just good for him. It's God's way of saying, yes, this man, my son, rose from the dead. He is the first of all these others who are going to rise from the dead who simply believe him. What is your future if you trust in Jesus? And really, what is the future of the world? Look at a couple of particulars that that Paul points out. Look in verse 24. 
First off, it's a destruction. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let me be brief here. When you see uh, footage of, let's say, bodies that were gassed in Syria, and not just grown-ups, but there's kids... Uh, When you see a school shooting, when you walk through a a cancer floor, you walk through a hospice, do you want the world to have less of that or do you want the world to have zero of that? And Paul says he didn't come to like give death and evil a black eye and show it who's the toughest guy in the high school. He came to destroy, it says it twice, destroy sin and death. The future of the person who trusts Christ is a body and a world where sin and death and depression and addiction and loneliness has been destroyed. But then there's the obvious one too, but I want to say it. Verse 21 is resurrection. As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Um, Some of you have heard me mention this before, but really good book that came out a few years ago about introverts, those weirdos. And uh, toward the end of the book, this, uh, the author, Susan Cain, she writes about a guy named David Weiss. And uh, David Weiss is a musician, he's a drummer and a music journalist. And she says, you know, really, he's looked up and, and, and he's done very well for himself. Lives in New York, married, kids. Uh, he loves living in New York. He thinks it's the most interesting place in the world. If, uh, if, you're, if you're a music enthusiast. And, he, and so, a very interesting life, and he's done well. So, but he talks about when he's growing up, he's just really lonely and ostracized. Uh, here's the way he puts it. Uh, people would always tell me, these are the best years, years of your life, like, you know, middle school, high school. And he said, I would think to myself, I hope not. I hated school. I remember thinking, I've got to get out of here. I was in sixth grade when Revenge of the Nerds came out, and I looked like I stepped out of the cast. So he looks up, he started playing drums. He saw a, dr- a drummer one time and thought, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. He started playing drums and experienced success. And that was just kind of the way out of uh, his hometown and, and the way into just a very fulfilling life. But here, here's what he says. And I'm just going to tell you, the sermon ends odd. Okay, I'm, like I'm going in a weird direction with this, but it's, it's good weird. Okay, David Weiss as an adult says, I feel like I'm in touch with that person today, the young David Weiss, nerdy David Weiss. I feel like I'm in touch with that person. Whenever I'm doing something that I think is cool, like if I'm in New York City in a room full of people interviewing Alicia Keys or something, I send a message back to that person and let him know that everything turned out okay. I feel like when I was nine, I was receiving that signal from the future which is one of the things that gave me the strength to hang in there. Now, I feel torn when I read that 
Because biblically speaking, I don't think you can do that. And if you can do that, I resent the fact that I haven't been sending signals back to me when I was 13 or 14 when I really could have used it. But does it kind of grab you a little bit? Like, what if, what if OKU could send something back to insecure, weak you, weaker, and say, it's going to be okay? All right, this is going to sound a little bit woo-woo, but that's how the Bible ends. Uh, the Bible, almost the last verse, it says, the Spirit, means the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that's the church. And they're speaking from heaven, and they talk to people on earth. It says, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And for years when I read that, I just heard Spirit. It's like God is talking to me from heaven saying, hey, come. Sinners, come. But it says, the Spirit and the bride. Do, do you understand what that's saying? It's an image of believers, dare we say, it's us in the future speaking back to us, saying, this is actually true. You don't have to build your life around your kids. You don't have to build your identity around your work. You don't have to build your sense of worth around people approving of you. You don't have to kill yourself to have more and have more pleasure. Jesus is real. The gospel is real. He rose and we will too. So come. Why do we make such a big deal of this? The physical resurrection of Jesus makes God's promises visible, but it makes our future visible. If we believe. And so in Jesus' name, I want to say to you, believe. Believe in the risen Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in whatever state we are, whether even at this moment we're still confused or feel disconnected from this or feel overjoyed at this or feel full of life at this, we pray that you'll be at work in us to show us what not only you have done, but what you will do. That because you rose, because the promises came true, that you will make all things new. And we pray in your name. Amen.